Hello, my name is Shelby and welcome to Education 612, Meaningful Assessment Practices from Concordia College. We will be reading a few different books that may challenge our thinking on current assessment practices that we currently use in our classrooms. We'll also dive into different strategies and research to move forward and improve our assessment practices to best meet the needs of our students. I cannot wait to get started and share some of the new things I've learned from the readings. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our first, or our second reading now, since this is our second episode, is from the book called Giving Students a Say, Smarter Assessment Practices to Empower and Engage. And this book is, was written by Myron Duick. Um, we focus on chapters four through six for this second reading. Chapter four was called Involving Students in Ongoing Assessment. And there are a few different things that stood out to me within that chapter. One of the first things was when Myron Duick said, countless times in my classroom, I encountered my on ice coaching dilemma. What should I do when the testing data contradict my professional judgment? This is something that I have struggled with, especially this last year when I would provide tests for my students. It would be their summative assessment for a grade, but they did not perform as well as I knew they probably could. And so it was kind of frustrating because I didn't want to give them that grade because I knew that they knew the content. They had shown it time and time again in their formative assessments. And so I can relate to him where he also has that dilemma that what do you do when the testing data contradicts the professional judgment? He also talked about some different suggestions for desirable difficulties environment. And so one of those first suggestions were to vary the conditions of practice. So you want to avoid having a predictable learning space. And that made sense because I remember in high school when I had to take, um, it was either the MCAs or our ACTs. And we are always in the classroom, but for this one test, for the one portion, our writing portion, we were put in the gym. And I remember it just, bothered me because you're not used to being in that learning environment and now you're taking a test that's going to evaluate how you are as a student? No thank you. And so the recommendation was to have different learning experiences in different spaces throughout the building outside. Switch things up so that when if you do have an assessment in a different learning space they're already used to it. They also said to um, space study or practice sessions because we do not retain much from cramming sessions, which I think we can all probably relate to. Especially in high school, I feel like I was a crammer. I was in sports and so I was busy and so I didn't have a lot of time to study and I didn't have the skills to study at that time, I feel like. And so what I would do is I would cram the night before for a test. I would do well, I would get an A or a B and then a week later, I probably would have failed that test because I just crammed, I got the information in my brain for that time, but I wasn't applying it and it was not sitting um, in so that I could recall it later on. Another suggestion was to interleave instruction rather than delivering it in blocks. So to kind of do some cross-curricular work, which I think is super important and something that is totally manageable in the elementary school classroom because we teach all subjects anyways and so I think it would be very easy to interweave some of those different topics of discussion 
um, versus just always having things that are taught in a block. And then the final suggestion was to consider the generation effect and to use tests rather than presentations as learning events. And so to give assessments to your students throughout a unit of study and use those as learning events, it will not be graded, but use it as a tool so that students can reflect on their learning and see specifically what they maybe need to practice and work on and study versus just delivering all of your instruction through a presentation. Um, another thing that stood out to me in that chapter about assessments was that when you're creating assessments, separate the tests by topics and standards, which makes a lot of sense because if you're going to be offering retakes and having students going back in to fix different mistakes after they've furthered some of their learning, it's much easier to organize that if it's already separated by the topics and standards. It also benefits the students that they can focus on that specific topic and that's what's in their brain as they're thinking through these questions versus going back and forth between many different topics of study, which I can imagine gets pretty confusing for students. Our tests currently, if you look at them, they're set up in the order of true and false questions altogether, multiple choice altogether, short answer altogether. We don't need to have it that way. We can put them in different orders. I think it makes the most sense to separate them by the topics and standards that you're learning in class. And then the final suggestion from this chapter that I really liked was to use the term pretest or practice test for the very first test that the students take. And then when you, they have their retest, just call that the test. The term retest can carry a negative connotation like they didn't do good enough, so they need to redo it. Whereas if you just have a pretest or practice test, that kind of gives them the framework that the, that test that they're taking is for them to see what they need to work on and to identify the skills that they need to improve. And then when it comes time for the retest that we're not gonna call a retest, we'll just call it their test. Moving into the next chapter was chapter five, which is called Creating Fair and Sensible Grading Systems. This is interesting because right now, as an elementary school teacher, we don't give percentage-based grades. Students receive, it's on a grading scale, kind of like this book has described. And so it was interesting because I can't completely relate to having that percentage-based system, but he did point out a few things that made really good points. One of the first things was that the average is useless and that averages are not designed for groups. I can relate to this because personally in my experience, um, I've made the mistake of collecting formative data and I use the grading scale, um, like the proficiency grading scale, it's not a percentage grading scale, and I've made the mistake of using the average of their scores. Well that doesn't make sense because the first few formatives that you gather, they may have not learned a skill yet. Students learn at their own pace. And so that connects to what I'll get to in another reading, is that using primarily the summative data to um, record a grade for students. They also talked about the differences between the percentages and the grading scale and provided an example of two students. So one student got a 96% and another student got a 98%. Both of them, if they were on the grading scale, they both would have been a six or an expert. 
But the percentage based, it tells you that the one who scored a 98% was better than the other. But that's not necessarily true. It's not very telling in the skills that students have learned. Whereas with that proficiency grading scale, it tells you where the students are at and it's more descriptive to how the students are doing and what they need to work on or what their strengths are. It also talks about the power of zero on a percentage-based scale. A zero can really kill a student's grade. It is a 60 to 65 point jump just to get a passing grade if you get a zero. Whereas if you have a four point scale, all of the categories are separated by just one point. Zeros really don't give students a chance. It makes their score plummet and it doesn't motivate students to want to succeed because if they get that zero, they may not have a chance to ever getting up to a passing grade. In chapter six, it is called Student Self-Reporting, It's More Than Numbers. And one of the ideas that was shared in this chapter that I thought would be something really great to take back to my class and something that I already kind of use was the idea of a sharing circle. A benefit of the sharing circle is that it can, it can build a very good sense of a community and it also um, can provide that environment where students feel safe and they can share and relate to one another. What you do is you would have an object and you would pass that object around. Whoever has the object, it is their turn to share. No one is forced to share, so when they get the object, they can just say pass and pass the object on. What is said in the circle, it will stay in the circle. And then another suggestion for making a sharing circle successful is to share the question with students before the circle begins. That way they have time to think about the circle. I'm time to think about their question and what their response might be. And then um, Myron Duick shared that the sharing circle helps establish a community, safety, and a sense that it's okay to be honest about oneself. And so that's something that we strive for in our classrooms. And so I think that is something, I mean, we do it every morning in morning meeting, we have a sharing circle and it helps really build that community. The first few times it is very challenging because a lot of people may not want to share. But as they get used to the routine and they get comfortable with one another, they identify different things that they can relate to with other students. They will open up and they will share more and the sharing circle will be a successful learning tool. It can also be used to have students reflect on different things in their learning. Once they get used to the routine of the sharing circle, and they've gotten comfortable, you can start integrating different content for students to reflect on their learning. Um, the final idea from this reading that I wanna talk about is conversation-based grading. And so I was kind of curious what that would look like in an elementary school classroom. But one thing that I think it would really work well for is especially the grade or the behaviors because I have to grade student behaviors. I think that's something that would be really good to have students grade themselves on because it's really hard for me, especially if I have to grade on effort. Who are you to say that you can say that, oh, this student, he needs improvement in his effort. Maybe he's trying his best with what he has. Maybe he's trying his best and he has a lot going on at home. You have to involve students in that conversation. It should not be a one-sided conversation directly from the teacher. 
And so with that, that brings us to the end of the book called Giving Students a Say, Smarter Assessment Practices to Empower and Engage, written by Myron Duick. Our next book that we will be getting into is called Grading for Equity, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How It Can Transform Schools and Classrooms. We will be reading in our next episode, chapters one through three. And so with that, I look forward to sharing my ideas that I have learned with you next time. Thank you for listening.